I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2 and verse 13. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 13. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And we're thinking this morning of the mind of Christ and following the healing of the paralyzed man, one who was, you might say, tied to his bed. Now you come immediately to the calling of Matthew, the disciple, one who was tied to his money, to his work as an official, a tax-collecting official who purchased possibly, who knows, a sublease. The right to collect taxes was auctioned out to very rich people who bought the lease to tax an entire area and they would sublease to lesser investors, employers, various portions of the city or place and he would collect the taxes. Of course, they were Jews collecting taxes from Jews for the Romans. They were collaborators, if you like. They were despised. And they were invariably, I don't know about Matthew, but they were invariably deeply dishonest and uh, exercised fraud wholesale and overcharged, overestimated, and so on. Well, here is the remarkable call of Matthew. Verse 13, first of all, just in passing, he went forth again by the seaside, and the multitude, not surprisingly, resorted unto him, and he taught them. What? Well, we're told earlier by Mark, repentance and remission of sins. We're told he taught the word. He expounded the scripture. But the chief subjects and the application and the end of his messages would be the need for repentance and remission from sin. And this Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, a lakeside city with a population of about 2,000, was his headquarters while in Galilee, while on this first Galilean ministry. Well, in verse 14, uh, in 13 rather, uh, well, back to uh, verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Well, his, that was his name. In all probability, can't be certain, but in all probability, Christ gave him the name of Matthew. The name Matthew means more or less God's gift. Probably in the case of Matthew, something given by God to Matthew, a gift given to him. The name, like the name of Simon to Peter, 
changed from Levi to Matthew. He's called Levi at first and Matthew thereafter. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't mention Levi at all. In his own account of how he was called, he was a very humble man, made humble by the Lord, because his own account is the briefest of all in the three gospels where it's recorded. And he uses the name Matthew from the beginning. And that's significant, as I shall seek to show. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. Some people picture a booth on the highway, which ran right along the front of the seashore. The Syrian-Egyptian highway, a booth probably there, to collect traders and uh, taxes, the tariff as they passed through the city. Or maybe it was an office, quite a substantial place. Perhaps there were other, em other employees, I imagine so. And Matthew was the sublease holder. Anyway, Matthew, he's literate, he's multilingual, literate in more than one language. He will be powerfully used by the Lord and will write, of course, or pen the Gospel of Matthew. But Christ is recorded as simply saying, follow me. And he rose immediately and followed him. But here's the significant thing. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. He saw him. He looked at him. All the Gospels say that. You'd pass it by if it were not in all three, the way it's expressed. He seems to have set his eye upon him. And he knew all about him. He knew his sin. He knew his greed. If he was a cheat, he knew that. He knew everything about him. And Matthew probably knew a good deal about the Lord. Those tax officials did. It was their business to know what was going on in the city, who was doing business, who was doing well, who owned what, who was passing through, what they were worth. They looked at everybody with eyes that saw money, prospective tax gain for them. And he knew about Christ being in the city and the great crowds, Maybe he'd heard him. Maybe he'd listened. Maybe he'd come under conviction beforehand. There's nothing said about that, except that on this occasion, Christ saw him. But he didn't only see the needy side of Matthew and the sin and the godlessness and the grasping and the fact that he was a slave to business and to money. And he didn't mind being an outcast from the local synagogue and despised and hated by the Jews. He could put up with all that because he had a big house and he had money. He was rich. Matthew, he saw something more. This is why in Matthew's Gospel it says, not that he saw Levi, but he saw Matthew. He saw the person he would make of him too. The change he would bring about in him. 
the conversion he would give him, the pardoned Matthew, the Matthew with a new life and a new heart and no greed, the Matthew who would follow him and be a disciple and probably die for him. That's the Matthew he also saw. And that's how Christ sees. That's how Christ looks upon us. We cannot see him. But he looks upon us and he looks right into the heart. And he sees what you've done. And what you always do. And the kind of person you are. He sees things you don't like to look at and you won't admit. And you would deny. He sees any dishonesty. He sees the greed. He sees the selfishness. He sees the unkindness, every moment of unkindness. He sees everything that will take you to hell and to condemnation. He sees the sin. He sees the uncleanness. But if you're going to be saved and he's set his love upon you and he's going to rescue you and change you, He sees you with a new name and a new nature and the new person he'll turn you into and the generosity and kindness he'll give you and the new love for him and the commitment and the dedication. He sees his handiwork stretching out into future years. So it's a little word, friends, But we're talking about the mind of Christ and how he sees. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Follow me, he said. That's very significant. There were wonderful things that we're called to. Christ says to us, come and have your sins forgiven. Be washed. If you're one of those who in the course of time repents of your sin and bows the knee to Christ and comes to him and experiences his transforming power, then he's already died for you. He's suffered for your sin. He's borne it away. So he could say, come to me and I'll wash you clean. All sin taken away from your record and forgiven. But that's not what he says. Yes, he gives that. But it's not what he says. He says, follow me. He could say, I will hear your prayers. I will be with you throughout life's journey. I will take you safely and securely to everlasting bliss. I will be with you in trouble, in happiness. I will guide you. But he doesn't say that here. He simply says, follow me. And this comes first. When you come to Christ, you do come for the forgiveness of sin and you repent. You do come for new life and eternity. But never forget this. The call says, follow me, give me your life, all of it, every part of it. I knew a man many years ago, 
And 40, 50 years ago, he used to come to this church. He wasn't a member. He would weep, this man, and he was very rich. He said to me once, I would do anything just to know that I could have one foot in heaven in the last day to have salvation and eternal life. I would do anything. The trouble is he wouldn't do anything. He came regularly to the services. He could speak so beautifully to you about the Lord and about these things. But the more I knew about him, well, the more trouble he was in. He was very rich. He cheated in his business. He was a womanizer. He was a secret drinker, upset his wife no end. All these things were evidence and pointed to the fact he was unsaved. He had the right desire. You could have thought he was a seeker. He could speak about the Lord, but he never followed him. He didn't give him his life and obey him. That's part of it. Of course, you can't do it in your own strength. As you come to him, as you repent, he will give you a new life. He will enable you to follow him. But that's what you're willing to do. Follow me. And immediately he arose and followed him. Is that the missing component for some friends here? You believe in Christ in a way, in a measure, but you've never given yourself to him, as well as repenting and asking for life and eternity. There has to be a transaction and change. And that you see it all in these very few words. It's a short account of the call of Matthew, but we can see so much in it. Well, dear friends, look at verse 15. And it came to pass, as, as Jesus sat at meat in his house, that is the house of Matthew, that's made very clear in Luke's gospel. It was a big house because there were many tax gatherers, publicans, people of the same trade from the entire region and sinners sat together with disciples of Christ. I don't know whether the Pharisees got in too or whether what the Pharisees were said about this was said afterwards as the people came out of the dinner. But there was Matthew's great goodbye to his old life, celebrated in a feast, a banquet. It was obviously intended as an act of witness. He called all his colleagues and collaborators. They all came with many other people. And the house was filled. I wonder what he did with that house. Was it given to the disciples in Capernaum? Did it become the meeting place of the church in due time? After the death and resurrection of Christ and the day of Pentecost? 
Was this where the church at Capernaum met? Who knows? But this is his last banquet there, his last event. And verse 16, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him, possibly they were outside, eat with publicans and sinners, they said to his disciples, they didn't say it to him, and Luke's gospel tells us the spirit in which they said this, they murmured. They were complaining, scorning, deriding. They said to his disciples, so I read it in a scornful tone, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? They didn't do that. They didn't reach out to outsiders. They stayed in temple and synagogue. They were very proud of themselves. They had perverted the Jewish religion. Instead of all the wonderful ceremonies of the law being teaching ceremonies that had a message that taught of the need for a great sacrifice for sin, that taught about the free grace of God, they turned these ceremonies into works and added and complicated them. And we who carry them out to the letter must be special people and godly people and close to God. They didn't have true faith in God, a true humble relationship with God. They were just people who trusted in their ceremonies and their works and their station and their position. And people who were off track, like tax gatherers and various other sinners, they viewed them with disdain and contempt. They would never have been concerned about their souls or their salvation. They didn't think like that. And so they say, how can this man, Jesus of Nazareth, be from God if he associates with that class of person and that brought the tremendous reply from Christ in verse 17 when Jesus heard it he said unto them they that are whole have no need of the physician but they that are sick he had come as a physician he had come as a physician Christ the great physician we could spend time with that Christ as a physician. He'd come not just to teach, but to cure. To bring people from a life of alienation from God into communion with God, to walk with him, to know him. He'd come to suffer and die on Calvary to purchase the right to forgive people, to bear the punishment of their sins and have the right to forgive and own and transform them. And this is how he puts it. A physician, he's qualified. Who's qualified to be a physician for souls? 
to save souls. Well, Christ, for two reasons. Because he's divine. He's God as well as man. He's God incarnate. That's how when he went to Calvary's cross, all the eternal punishment of sin for those who would be saved could be put upon him and he could bear it away without being destroyed because he was God. He had to suffer it just as we must suffer it. So he was man too. Only Christ is qualified to make an atonement for the sins of lost men and women. Only he can do it because he is divine and he is also human. And then again, he's qualified in another way. When he came to earth, he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. Otherwise, he would be condemned for his own sin. So he alone is qualified. That's why there's only one true faith, the Christian faith, because it alone has a saviour who came from heaven, who's qualified to be a physician to our souls and a mediator. He is our physician. He has the right heart. He's compassionate and merciful. You see it in all his miracles of compassion, non-stop throughout his life, healing the most desperate cases for nothing out of sheer mercy and compassion. So his heart is demonstrated to us. Sometimes the seeking soul says, how do I know that Christ will listen to me or accept me? Look at his life. Look at his heart of compassion. Don't you see it? Of course he'll receive you and accept you and forgive you and take you. He's qualified. He has the compassion. And he has the remedy too. He has died on Calvary, as I've mentioned. I came not to call the righteous or people who imagine they're righteous, or they don't need me. Is that you, friends? Oh, I know I've got my faults, but I'm not too bad a person. I do good things. I'm better than some others. I'm a nice person. Do you think so? Well, I'm glad you do some nice things. But when God looks at us, he sees beneath all that and he sees the cauldron of sin in the heart and he sees all the stains and the guilt. No, dear friends, we better start feeling our need of the forgiving love of God or we're doomed eternally. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. But then verse 18, and I'm proceeding in an expository manner this morning, and the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they, 
and I think the they is the Pharisees again. They're always finding fault. They've come all the way to Jerusalem, to come from Jerusalem to Capernaum, to find fault. And they come and say unto him, to Christ this time directly, why do the disciples of John the Baptist and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Well, sometimes people are puzzled by that. Why is that, that Christ's disciples didn't fast? Well, very briefly, actually, there never was supposed to be fasting as part of the ceremonies of the Old Testament. This is something that was added as time went on by the clergy. There's only one text in Leviticus which could be taken to mean fasting, and it doesn't actually say that. It simply says that at a certain time on the Day of Atonement, the people must afflict their souls. And the prophets, particularly Isaiah, explains what that really meant. And he protests and says, it doesn't mean fasting. It means look after the orphans and the widows and do good things. Steward your goods to help others. That's how you afflict the soul. Now there is fasting in the Bible, but it's a personal thing, a secret thing, to help us pray sometimes in times of great distress and need. It doesn't add to the prayer, it just helps us to be serious before the Lord. But there never was really any ceremonial fasting for the people of God. But anyway, that's not the reason why the disciples of Christ didn't fast. Look at this beautiful reply, verse 19. Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Christ was with them, bringing a message of forgiveness and new life and heaven and love. This isn't a time for fasting. Then Christ predicts his death. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. And then shall they fast in those days, but not for long, because he would rise again, and the Spirit would be given, and the church would begin, and the gospel would be preached to all nations. And this is a message called the gospel, a good news, that means, of forgiveness and new life and eternal life. So Christ answers them. But then we must come to conclusion with these mysterious verses. Look down to verse 21. No man soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. Wonderful illustration. 
You've got an old garment, but it needs attention. So decide to give it a patch, and you take a new piece of cloth and sew it on. And of course, they will have quite different shrinkage rates. One is old and already shrunk. The new hasn't moved yet, and so there'll be a tear. But there's more to this illustration. Because elsewhere, we're told in Luke's Gospel, words to this effect, no man takes a piece out of a new garment and uses it as a patch to mend an old one. That's marvellous. There's more to the illustration than Mark or Matthew record. And Luke provides the extra information. This patch, of all things, has been taken out of a new garment. So you ruin the new garment, and you ruin the old garment. It's a marvellous illustration. First of all, but I won't stay with this, the meaning is Christ is saying, John the Baptist is the first minister of the New Testament and the last minister of the Old Testament. And he represents the Old Testament. And his cry is, we need change. And I'm here to announce that Messiah has come. Change is coming. We need to repent and seek change. Messiah is the new message. Redemption through his blood. How people are saved. You can't mix the two. The Old Testament ceremonies are now at an end. They pointed forward to Christ. Christ has come. Gospel light has shone. Don't mix the two up. Some of the Jews wanted to do that, you know. You know about Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, actually before this event, came to Christ by night and said, no man can do the wonderful things you do unless God be with him. What do you think he meant? Oh, said Nicodemus, the leader of the Pharisees. He was representing them. You know, you could be a great addition to us. We keep our teaching, the law. You must keep the law and the ceremonial law. We'll keep it all going. In the temple, the priesthood and the law. But we'll enrich it with you doing miracles. Your miracles and our Old Testament law, wonderful. Christ cut him short. You cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, born anew. You can't take a bit of Christ, say his miracles, which is what I think Nicodemus wanted to do, and patch the Old Testament with it to keep it going. The old is past, the new has come. But here's the wider meaning, and it applies to you and me. When we come to Christ or before we come to Christ, 
We've got an old life. You can't just take a bit of Christ and add it to the old life. I'll come to church. I'll believe that Christ came. Wonderful man. And I'll worship. But I won't give myself to him. But it'll make me better. Because now I've got a bit of Christian belief. You can't patch your life with a bit of Christian belief. The old life is like the old garment. It's threadbare. It's deeply stained. It's got holes where the moth has been at it. It's worn out and horrible to look at in God's sight. That's your life, your old life. It's got to go altogether. It can't be patched. You've got to have the new garment. Put the new garment on entirely. Why would anybody want to patch the old garment by stealing from the new? Extraordinary thing to want to do. Why do I not want a completely new life? To repent of my sin and come to Christ and have a new nature and a new hope? Why do I not want that? I obviously don't realise how bad the old is. I don't realise how good the new is. I don't realise this cannot be done. That's the meaning of the picture as it applies to us. This passage is all about following Christ, yielding to him, him as the great physician, him as the one who can give us the new garment. Dear friends, that's enough for us for this morning. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, singing our closing hymn. It's hymn 249. Hymn 249. Many woes had he endured.